Hello, everybody. You are listening to Wolf in Tune, and I'm your wolf, Richard Wolfie Wolf. And today I am honored to welcome the great Kenny Werner to the pod. Welcome, Kenny, to my humble pod. Speaking of humbleness, Kenny, I'm going to read a little bit of your bio just so people get a little context. Kenny Werner is a world-renowned pianist, composer, teacher, and author from New York. His first book, Effortless Mastery, has sold over 150,000 copies. There's a lot of copies. And earned him the spot of artistic director of the Effortless Mastery Institute at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. In his newest book, Becoming the Instrument, Lessons on Self-Mastery from Music to Life, Werner teaches musicians and artists to allow their, quote, master creator within to lift their performance to its highest level. Werner has performed with numerous jazz greats, including Dizzy Gillespie, Ron Carter, and Jack Dijonette. In addition to releasing more than 30 recordings, Werner has led and composed for many major international jazz and symphony orchestras. So thank you very much, Kenny, for accepting my invitation. Thank you for inviting me. I never told you this before because I didn't want to embarrass you in private. But in my opinion, you are a really outstanding writer. You have a way of conveying your ideas that's very compelling for the reader. You have a way of wielding the English language with the same aplomb and dexterity as you tickled black and white ivories. Wow. And I really admire that. I'm a musician and writer myself. As, as a second and unplanned career, uh, it really honors me that you say that, you know, because obviously I was trying to do what everybody's trying to do, play the music and get paid. Now, you've been known generally for your music. I mean, that was your identity. That was your personality in the world as a musician and a noted piano player in jazz. But now you're also known as an author. So that's like a double identity. It, uh, I'm more known as an author than I am as a piano player. Because people heard about my piano playing, but they received the, you know, if I fly somewhere, there may be people that have not been to a concert and maybe not have heard my records or not heard much, but they, uh, they have the book. So it kind of eclipsed all that, which is interesting. And I had to fight not fighting that, you know, just, hey, how, how, first of all, it's all the same thing. Words, sound, music comes from that same place. And so if I'm surprised by the career I have, so I'm surprised, you know, just go with it. Yeah, well, it's hard to fight it when you have people coming up to you and saying how influenced, you know. They've been by reading you. I wrote it because when I spoke it, people were finding a lot of answers for what they were personally going for. And I knew it was relevant and I knew it was different, but I didn't know how much so. And then when I wrote the book, it, it just redefined my career. I wasn't an inside piano player. I wasn't an outside piano player. I wasn't traditional. I wasn't avant-garde, which I feel like I might be any of those things at any moment because I don't really care about the tradition or styles. To me, that's like the suit a person wears. It's not 
the soul. The music can come out in any kind of way, right? But after the book, I wasn't any of those things. I was the piano player that wrote that book. <laughs> so it was like they didn't know what to expect, which was a good place for them to be. Well, speaking of undeveloped and early on influences, it's kind of very amusing that you write as your influences, for instance, Chico Marx. He was uh, one of the Marx brothers, right? He was the Italian-American brother. All the rest of them were Jewish-Americans. And I loved it when he used to say, there is no sanity clause. <laughs> I didn't really listen to a lot of music. And the players on television were the Marx Brothers, if, if Chico Marx was playing. Uh, Jimmy Durante, who wasn't a good player. He used to accompany himself, da, 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 like that. But he had a great bit that preceded the cream by 50 years. If he could, he just got so frustrated playing the piano, he would start beating it. And the piano was rigged to fall. Do you remember that? To fall completely to pieces on the ground. I tried to find it on YouTube. I couldn't find it. And then Liberace and uh, Roger Williams, who was actually a rather tasteful but commercial. Back then, pop music could be a piano player that was, you know, he did Born Free or the original... Uh, Autumn Leaves. Yep. When you hear this. You know, that was Roger Williams. And Victor, I think it was Borga? Oh, Victor, yeah, Victor. Um, Borga. Borga. Yeah, Victor Borga. Yeah, he used to say, I'm a little bit out of breath because it's been a long day and I've been breathing the whole time. <laughs> He's brilliant and quite a great piano player. But he also, you know, I've, I've come as a player, you have to, you get stronger the more honest you get with yourself. Now, you may not like what that honesty is saying, but if you embrace it, you get stronger. So for many years, under the influence of my colleagues, I thought it was important to be an artist. But what I really was was an entertainer. It could be deep music. But there had to be an entertainment factor because that's what I came up watching. People that didn't put other people, you know, and, and the teaching became that too. The teaching is very much in my mind a performance, but not while I'm doing it. The more you become like yourself, I, I'm becoming more and more like the, the little kid that was watching television. It's entertaining. It's awfully often funny. And the deeper part of the music for me doesn't come from deep music that I actually saw on TV, because you didn't see that much deep music on TV, but from deep moments in movies. You know, so for example, it was probably 20 to 20 years ago when I admitted to myself, as you get more and more honest about who you actually are, rather than who you think you should be, I said, you're really more into movies than music, right? And that was really kind of shocking, but it was true. And when I embraced that, my music took on more dimensions because in my mind, it was finished when it was a movie, not when it was a good musical performance. I mean, it had things that musical performances lack because it doesn't have that dimension of, you know, drama, emotion. It has emotion, but not like movies. So my emotion, like my relationship with chords, I could almost recite a movie to you depending on what chord I'm playing, and it's going through a typical movie. So chords have theatrical value now.
But they wouldn't if I hadn't admitted to myself that I was more into movies than I was music. Wow. That's scandalous. I know. I mean, it got more scandalous from there as I got more honest with myself. But then the music got stronger. See, that's the thing. People, you know, if I'm teaching people something and, yeah, the philosophy is great, but you didn't come here for philosophy. You want to play better. It just so happens that there are certain selections from philosophy that are going to get you out of the way and you're going to immediately play better. And, of course, musicians who would rather cut off uh, uh, an ear than play badly or a pinky, they, that catches their attention. Well, I'm going to play better? Oh, yeah, I want to play better. Yeah, you might have to conquer a little bit of your shallow self, but it'll actually get out of the way and you'll find things that you never found before. Well, yeah, you make the point with which I'm in total agreement that music can be a gateway to deep truth. In fact, I'm going to quote you here. You said that, quote, in every way, music is our bond between the material and the eternal. Well, you know what it is? It takes the mind, and I'm sure scientists could back it up, to more like the superconscious place. You're at a concert, you leave, and you feel like you've been taken a bridge to a, 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 a wider version of yourself. Suddenly it doesn't matter that your wife's a drag, you know, or whatever, right? You know, what we just felt, what we just heard. And yet, the playing of the music, I, for myself, and my students, I encourage, just strip away all that special stuff that you think music is, what I call the pseudo-importance of music. Because everybody comes to music because of its ethereal, ethereally attractive qualities, and they don't know that's what it is, but something's making them feel better. But you know, as they get into it deeper, it becomes more of a myopic trip. How do I sound? And that puts a lot of musicians in a very, uh, uh, you know, constricted space. And some people go from birthday to death day. That's what I call it, birthday, death day. And they never really knew what music could do for them, what a gift it could have been, because it became this sort of a sonic narcissism. Mm. A couple of things. This experience that you describe of a non-musician or music fan going to a concert, as part of the audience, you can have this transpersonal feeling of connecting to something beyond yourself, right? You're connecting to everybody else in the audience. You're connecting to the performers on stage. You're connecting to an energy or something bigger than you. And that's the power of music that attracts us to it. Now, music, it's invisible, it's intangible, immaterial, but yet it's very powerful, and not only in a psychological way, but in a physical way, in a soulful way, in an emotional way. But with a musician that's performing on stage and making this their livelihood, there can be other layers of complications and self-doubt that can cause great discomfort and discontent. They might be handicapped. They might be somewhat handicapped to have the experience that the non-musician has because of ego. How do I sound stacked up with that? Wow, if I practice 20 years, maybe I can do that. And you're thinking about this inane stuff when you could be surrounded. But you see, even that 
proves about the uh, conductivity of invisible things because the player experiences that on the inside, then people get that on the outside. They are attracted like moths to a flame, to a light bulb. You know, because everybody is looking for that treasure inside. And if a musician's not putting it out there, a few friends that are especially close, they might go, that was incredible. But other people will be unaffected because it is a real conductivity. If you're not playing from a certain place inside, you're not bringing other people to that part of themselves. And so what happens is you walk out on a stage and it doesn't, whether it's five people or 50,000 people, the thing is to go inside and resonate. And when you resonate, it's, it's everybody starts to tune in. So it, it actually comes from a real thing. Yeah. Kenny, I don't want to beat around the bush anymore or dodge the 800-pound question mark in the room. Could you explain in a very succinct and pithy manner, what is effortless and what do you mean by mastery? By the way, beautiful titles for your philosophy. But could you please explain? Yeah, and of course it's expanded as I've had the honor of teaching it because it's always new. So for example, the original meaning was this. Whatever you play, it doesn't have to be virtuosic. But if it plays itself, that's effortless mastery. Some people would argue, because of my training, I have never played anything effortless. And I say, well, you have. You just don't have any respect for it. Play a C major triad. That's effortless mastery. So now you know that that exists, and that when you do it, you're as much of an effortless master as anybody else. Then what else can I train myself to do on such a deep level that it plays itself. You know, can I go, or do I have to do this? Here's chord number one, and then, see chord number two is not effortlessly mastered, but of course it is. So the original idea was I'd be watching people play something they know but because of their caring, that it's better than they're able to play it. See, this is the ego thing that is the market. For every hundred, there's 97 people that don't have the experience because they're more preoccupied with playing better than they're ready to play. So that shows a lack of self-respect. You don't respect your music because it's good. You respect your music because it's yours. And if you can make that transition then anything you play, your own profound contentment with it will make it attractive because people are looking for profound contentment. But all they dwell on is what's above their station. And certainly musicians are so guilty of that. So if you say, wow, that's the most beautiful sound I ever heard, that too, that too then you find you cross a bridge where, a really profound bridge, where this duality between good and bad music disappears. Here's bad music. I don't know, it sounded great to me. So, you know, and when you get there, you never sound bad again because your worst performance 
it's it's like reprogramming your mind that the respect and self-support is more important than the music itself. So if I go like this. That's great because I think it's great. And that's the conductivity. So effortless mastery means playing within the scope of what you could play so easily that it plays itself. Now, the mastery part, people mistake mastery for virtuosity. No, virtuosity uh, speaks to the quantity of things you can do. You can play Latin music. Let's say you're not a classical player. You can play Latin music. Then you can do, a, you know, a jazz shit. And then you can do, a, you know, funk. And then, you know, that's mastery means, I mean, you use a fork. That's effortless mastery. Doing your taxes. You could be on four social platforms and having sex. And you still wouldn't miss your mouth. So then music is not how many things can I kind of sort of play. What can I play that I own neurologically so well that it plays itself? Because if I don't have to play it, then it opens the, first of all, it opens the door for a, a question that you can't answer so you can create your own answer. If I'm not playing, who is? Well, now you could say, well, God is playing. Or you could say Jesus is playing or Charlie Parker is playing, or Jimmy Durante is playing. So the first thing when you asked who's playing, you said, is that God playing? Well, you can go that direction. A very tempting direction. Or you can go in the neurological direction. Oh yeah, well, neurologically, I can drop my fingers on these buttons. And by the way, it's a lot more fresh when you think of them as buttons than keys. It brings back the childhood thing. Look, there's a bunch of things in music that you don't even question. If I say, when you're playing, you, what do you try to do? They say, well, I try to sound good. But if I said, well, Richard, when you're talking to me, what, you, what is your goal? They say, well, when I talk to you, Kenny, I'm trying to sound good. It's a whole different meaning, isn't it? So if we apply life's terms to what playing music is, we can be liberated from a lot of the ego stuff that musicians go through, not the ones that we revere, not the ones that we listen to, the, the other 97% that fantasized that they were going to have that relationship to music. Okay, so now as Effortless Mastery went on, it was like this. If you go, to, Effortless Mastery now is, let's say your ego, which is kind of like you're having a chess game with your ego, and I'm not a chess player, but your ego goes, oh, you played so good last night, now you're going to play good again. And you say, I don't have to play good. So it was check, but it wasn't checkmate. Then, of course, because you truly believe you don't have to play good, you play better. So then let's say you go, or you're saying, sometimes students will say to me, I've had classical players call me and say, I read Effortless Mastery, I agree with everything. I am auditioning for the first oboe chair of the Chicago Symphony. How do I do Effortless Mastery? So I said, well, you don't exactly do Effortless Mastery. It's a, it's a practice that you give yourself a few minutes here and there to sample the truth. Now, it really is the truth. It doesn't matter how you play. What's the truth? The truth is, is that music is for you to fulfill, to be fulfilled. 
And it's not invalid because you're not a great player. And it's not valid because you are a great player. That is, you know, earthly, egoistic stuff. I mean, it's fascinating when someone's a virtuoso, but everybody else is going through shit because they're not. Very key in your philosophy is you should not attach your self-worth to how good you are as a musician. Yeah, and I like to say it, I don't attach your self-worth as a human to something as inconsequential as how you play a musical instrument. But that causes you to play better. Because whenever one did play better, they were further away from those kind of measures, those kind of contexts, those kind of qualifications, you know? So it's just learning a mindset and feeding it from any way, common sense. I'm not going to be Keith Jarrett, we'll say. Now, am I going to accept that? Or am I going to feel the deficit of that every time I play from birthday to death day? No, I want to acclimate myself to appreciation of what I do play, which paradoxically will elevate the level of that playing or that music. That's self-acceptance. Look at Willie Nelson. I mean, he obviously wasn't thinking, you know, he plays guitar the same way at 17 and he played at 78. It doesn't matter to him, therefore it doesn't matter to us. A salient point that it seems you want to get across is to let your listeners or readers know that within them, they are already masters. They're already perfect, which seems to be influenced by Eastern philosophy. Well, that's not my teaching. That is generally Kashmir Shaivism. That is, well, Kashmir Shaivism, you know, the, the spiritual heart, one of the spiritual, look, there's religions, and then there is the soft light that became a religion, a truth before it became an organization, right? Like, Bebop was the truth, then it became a, you know, then it became a prison cell. Humans could only handle the truth for a finite amount of times. So somebody comes along with the truth, Charlie Parker comes along with the truth. It seems like a freedom from everything that existed before. Give it 10 years, and everybody's beating themselves up trying to play it. You mentioned shavism. Can you explain that a little bit? Shavism, well, I mean, I'm not an expert on anything of that, except what's homespun. But you, you said, um, what did you say? I think you're referring to the idea that people have an inherent divinity within them. Yeah, I mean, that's, you will find that if you read, I mean, all the gurus, the fake ones and the real ones. I mean, the fake ones may have power too, but, but they're fake because they're for themselves. And the real ones are trying to show you that you are God. So I'm not walking around telling people that I know that, but I know it over here. You know, you haven't really seen that, but. You know? So I teach the lessons from music, and people have found that if they take the verbiage and apply it to their life, they've had life-changing experiences. That's why the next book became sort of wider concentric circles. So another thing about effortless mastery, let's say you go in expecting to be detached and you're not. Effortless mastery at that point is instantly forgiving yourself. Nice. Every time you can get back to as close to you are as grateful, as accepting, as self-supportive. And I mean, I have not lived this way. It's taken 65 of my 70 years to get it into my life. Sure. 
I believe, for me, the state of mind that creates music has supplanted the music itself for me. I tell my students, we're working on your state of mind. I'm not even going to comment on your music because that would put us back in that narcissistic thing. Is the music good? I want you to spend time with me even pretending that it doesn't matter. Because if you can taste that for a moment, you're going to instantly be on fire. This idea that everything I'm playing, like when you play those notes, and you say, oh, that's perfect. You know, that's the most beautiful sound in the world. That on a musical plane correlates to the teachings that people have already inherent divinity within them. Or like in Buddhism, they say, you're already enlightened. There's nothing more for you to attain. Exactly. And in jazz, we have a tradition of artists saying, like Thelonious Monk, there are no wrong notes. It's much easier to say than it is to do. Because the moat between a philosophy and the implementation of it is some sort of practice. So if you don't practice loving yourself at the precise moment you have no reason to, do, to love yourself, then that love is conditional, which means it's not unconditional. What is unconditional? Well, for a musician, it means I love myself even if I play badly. Ooh, not two musicians could do that. They could say it, but they can't do it. So what are we trying to have, a contest to see who could be more liberated sounding badly? No, we're trying to liberate people from the tyranny of trying to sound good. A lot of people live their whole lives with music being some kind of test, and the, the shame is that they miss the inherent gift of it, which is unconditional love. So then, if you say, yeah, but what if I want to play Giant Steps? Right. Well, then, the purpose of practice now is not just to play something well or play something better, but you want to practice for mastery. What does that mean? It plays itself. What is mastery? Here's mastery. And this is mastery. Now, so my practicing got much more stretched out because if someone's practicing playing in seven or playing in nine, and they can do it, but everything they do is like holding on to make sure it stays in seven or holding on, you know, that's worthless to me. It's not worth playing it for another human being until it plays itself. So that's my standard, and I get to do that because I wrote this book. But really, people get there faster when they stop asking themselves, how am I doing? I mean, one of the foundational things about effortless mastery that I found as a layperson, and science has just been confirming, is that we have these different points in our brain, so I call them rooms. So there's a room of thoughts, and that room, I'd say, is rarely satisfying. It's not thoughts like applied thinking, like, well, how am I going to I got to do this and I got to do that and how am I going to accomplish this? It's this kind of thinking. What's going to happen in my future? Uh, you know, it's all age appropriate. Students are wondering, am I going to ever be a player? Middle aged people are going to, am I ever going to play better than I play? Older ones are saying, what's my social security going to be like? You know, something to do with the future. So most people are constricted, somewhat fearing the future or regretting the past. 
So I take great pains to say there's another room, and that room is the space. And what's in the room of the space? Nothing. Nothing. How do you get out of the room of thoughts, like it's a room with 100,000 worms in it? Well, you start focusing on your breathing, which is also part of many different somatic disciplines, but with less commitment. I had to keep finding less and less commitment until it was something I could do. You see, again, if you think, people think you're so great because you wrote this book. No, no. I'm, I, all I do is sit, if I, meditation for me is watching four episodes of The Crown. I want people to know you don't have to have any special vibe to know the truth, that it's more knowable than you think, and it doesn't speak to anything else. So if I just watch myself breathe for a short time, If I'm really just watching myself breathe, I'm not thinking. And if I'm thinking, I'm not stopped watching myself breathe. And even if I think, wow, you're not thinking. I'm no longer watching myself breathe. Here's the rap, okay? I'm thinking, I'm thinking, whatever I'm thinking, it's probably a drag. It's probably, in, you know, some kind of insecurity or questions that are unanswered, right? I go, okay, I've been down that road, that fork many times, never ends well. But I am bre- I can't stop myself because my mind is smarter than I am. I finally figured that out and it cooled me out. Don't try to beat your mind. It's smarter than you. It's like the devil. It's like the devil in damn Yankees. It'll always come up with stuff to lure you, right? But I can't change it, but I can take a break. So I go, I'm already breathing. I'll watch myself do it for 20 seconds. Okay, that's probably 20 seconds. And then just shut it off. You leave it before it leaves you because it always leaves you as you're trying to lay. The suckers we are is we're trying to see if we can do it longer. The whole idea is to get totally there for the shortest amount of time. And what happens, it pokes holes of light into that wall that we think is reality. Right. So the connection here is to have the same quality of attentiveness playing the piano as you do while watching your breathing, which is very cool. If I'm watching myself breathe, I have, you know, when I'm introducing this to people, and it's on all instruments, not on the piano, but on the piano it tends to be thumb to the pinky or pinky to the thumb. So I lift another finger. Now that's enough to engage someone's ego. They might go, that sounds so good. I hope I can do it again. And when you catch that thought, you drop your hands. The exercises of effortless mastery don't just speak about prioritizing state of mind over the ego of sounding good. They actually practice that. If I start to think, wow, that sounded good, and then I go, oh, It's the only exercise where, even if the music is good, if your mind jumped in again, you take your hands off the instrument. And that is a very powerful reprogrammer. And the hands start to believe that they are in charge. 
And the good news about that is they'll only play what they know because they don't, they don't have an ego. So this idea that the hands know how to play and that the thinking mind, rather than dictating what should be played, is not interfering. It's kind of a passenger taking a back seat. And this kind of an idea is, is known as embodied cognition in meditation. In some forms of uh, meditation, you can reach that state where the thinking mind doesn't interfere with your field of awareness and that your mind, body, soul, feeling are all in harmony together in tune with the present moment. So if you've had this kind of mind, body, feeling integration in music, you can relate that to contemplative practice like meditation. Is that in concord with your point of view? Yeah. People usually go around the other way. They take a yoga class, Tai Chi, Qigong, meditation, blah, blah, blah. And they're really getting there until you put an instrument in front of them. And then it's just like putting a mirror there. All of a sudden, like, how do I sound? How do I sound? So most people will have achieved some sort of balance in that way but lose it when they play. I was the other way around. I was born with a healthy disrespect. I was trying to avoid that word, but for music as some kind of an entity. It's just something I do. That's where it is. I didn't know. I thought I was cheating or something. Then I saw people that were focusing so deeply on trying to sound good that Obviously, and that was the block. That's all I started to do is comment on it. But for me, I always knew that we're already perfect. It doesn't matter what the music is. And that's what the gurus are talking about with your life, you know. But in my life, I was equally inept, just as, in just as much measure, inept. So for me, it was the other way around. I see what perfection is. Perfection is self-love, regardless of the circumstances. And I pretty much have that as soon as I play. And then what I play makes me love it more because now it's a, you know, roll, you know, rolling stone gathering moss over years and with the gift of teaching it too. But it took this book, one of the sub themes of the book is me finally feeling my life getting closer to the simplicity of what I know music is. And letting go of some of the, con no, making a big decision and letting go of the consequences. Instead of most of my life not passing on a decision because it might not work out. I, it's a success because I made the decision. Now I know that in music. Here's a chord. I don't, it just doesn't sound good because of 20th century music. It doesn't sound good because of 12 tone music. It doesn't, has no musical reason for sounding good. It sounds good because I'm touching something I love to touch. And that's a state of mind. The latest definition of effortless mastery is this simple. The body plays, the mind watches. Now, a little level better than that, the body plays, the mind receives. A little more inspired than that, the body plays, the mind appreciates. The body plays, the mind moves into intoxication. The body plays, the mind is immersed in gratitude. And now the sensual has evolved into the spiritual. When you talk about the spiritual and sensual, it reminds me of what Prince said, that music connects horniness with holiness. <laughs> That's great. 
Yeah, but you know, it really has more resonance when it's from somebody that does that, and Prince definitely knew that. He did, and even Beethoven remarked that music is the median between the spiritual and the sensual. Yeah, and some people fell a little more, it's like a seesaw. Greatest story, it's in the book too. <clears throat> when I was in program, <clears throat> and program is a great, you know, where do you learn from? I've learned from a guru, I've learned from being a drug addict, I've learned from A Course in Miracles, I've learned from you know, great people that, you know, that I thought embodied what I was going for in life, you know, and I've learned from Chico Marx and Liberace and, and Jimmy Durante on equal measure. It could be the Mahabharata or the Bhagavad Gita, but it's also several episodes of Star Trek. Equanimity, non-duality. There is no light and heavy. The heavy is light and the light is very heavy, you know? And then you don't have to keep bouncing back and forth. Yeah, I think the point is well taken. That in non-duality, there's the absolute where there is no light and heavy. There is no subject and object. But then there's also the relative where there are these distinctions. But being in that space where there's no ego, where you are just experiencing ultimate reality, that has to be temporary because then you walk out the door and you have to go back to conventional reality where there are boundaries. It's a completely different challenge than living in absolute reality. Well, you pretty much know you're going to lose it every day. See, again, it's ego. If you think the only point in me becoming perfect, even for 20 seconds, is that it's somehow going to bleed in my playing and my life and people are going to see it, you're going to be disappointed pretty fast and you won't keep it going. But if you practice something that's 20 seconds or five minutes or whatever, and it doesn't matter whether you get there or not, you'll probably practice it for the rest of your life. I practice it and fully expect to lose it. The only time I lose heart is when I think I shouldn't lose it. And I remind myself, oh yeah, I don't want to hold myself hostage. Like I'm going to say a really bad thing happened, right? So I can't beat that down. And I'm going to feel it, but I'm going to take a break. See, because I was breathing before I took the break, I just joined something that's already happening, not something that's special, right? And the more I did that, then when I went back to the drama, it wasn't so deep. Then I said, okay, when I stop to watch this breathing, that's where God is. Oh, I just made it a spiritual path. It could be a religion, except as soon as it becomes a religion, Nobody will know where it is anymore because of the excesses of religion. If you keep it simple, like they say in the program, it's simple, not easy. So I was going to tell you, it's funny, I, I'm overlapping myself. I'm sorry. You know, I bought a car today, so I got here late. So, so I'll just go no, with the dolphins of thought. Is you know, okay. Dolphins of thought. So I was at this program once, and this guy comes in, and this new, newcomer, and he said, who are you? And my name is Whitey. I'm a hitman. No kidding. Not the Whitey. Whitey Bulger. No, I don't know. Because it was back in the in 80s, but it was in New York. His name was Whitey and he was a hitman. I don't know. But here's the deal. He'd come in every day. Of course, in program, they talk about spirituality that you come to believe, right? So that was very good for me because if you don't come to believe it, you can't get sober. 
you know, pretty much, you know, so you have to bite the bullet there. So anyway, this guy comes every day and he's like just poo-pooing all that. And so one day the, a guy's up there who's tougher than him, bigger than him. This was not cocaine anonymous. This was drugs anonymous. That's, that's a different cocaine anonymous was always guys wearing a nice three piece suit. Cause they just came from wall street drugs anonymous. Those cats were a lot tougher. Right. But so it was good to go to those meetings. So this guy goes, look, if you don't believe in God, I want you to come in and you see that chair. And I can I use the F word on here or is, is it better not to? You can use F and well, whatever. You see this F and chair over here? Every day you come in, I want you to ask this F and chair to keep you sober. So you, Whitey's coming in every day and he's asking the chair to keep him sober. He's, that's, that's stupid enough to be able to do it, right? But as the days go by, you see a change in Whitey's face, a little bit of reverence for the chair. So that guy uh, unintentionally was really proving the wisdom of the ascetics for all time. Where you put your belief, even the uh, evangelists will say, it's the power of your faith, right? But they don't say the rest of it, even if God doesn't exist, it's still the power of your faith. See, in my book, I like to say, in fact, in the middle of the book, I start saying, uh, what is it, God, I-H-E. So I might be talking about God for a thousand pages, but it's God, I-H-E, if he exists doesn't really matter. It's what I put my faith into. Because I can't know, not on the level of empirical proof. I mean, miracles, they happen in every religion. They happen to people that have miraculous beliefs. So it comes down to the human. How powerful are we really? Was God in the chair? Or did God enter the chair when he saw that Whitey was going to ask him to keep sober? Or was God always in the chair? Or is there no God? It doesn't matter. He found God in that chair. So what that told me is that you create what it is you're going to worship. And then you keep building that belief. Now I believe that music doesn't matter. Is that true? Depends on who you ask. But the further I went down that road, the more I found myself inspired without even being inspired. Or I would just get done just safe in the knowledge <clears throat> that my life doesn't depend on, or I mean, I can even say, you know, safe in the knowledge that it doesn't matter. And then when I look around, it was a phenomenon for everyone else. Well, on an absolute level, it doesn't matter. But on a relative level, I don't know. It's okay, well, here's a relative thing. What people don't do is spending enough time to actually attain the absolute thing. That would be this step. I drop a finger. Did I stop watching my breathing or did I stop looking out the window or did I start to care about those notes? And if I did, I actually dropped my hand. This is the root exercise for actually implementing an idea that most people would say but don't actually even believe is true. That music doesn't matter. I mean, that's a tough one for people to say. But when I drop this finger, it gets me high to know that it doesn't really matter. So that's the absolute. You just agreed with that. Yes. You need to spend enough time for the absolute to become sort of accessible. Then you go through this crash. You try to play a tune, which is, by the way, 
the second step is moving around. You know, while we're talking about that was the first step. Like, what, like a singer, this would be for the singer. Watch yourself breathe. Or I also use a thing over the head. Can you see over your own head like three inches? Imagine there's a shelf there. Now watch that. But don't do it for long so you can do it completely. Now I say sing, but don't take your attention off of that. You go, uh, and I'm still watching that shelf over my head. But singers would leave that and immediately try to sound good. So for the piano, it's this. One finger, am I still focusing in here? Or I could be looking out the window, counting the leaves, or catching, counting cars. But I got to give my hand its neurological supremacy and stop telling it where to go. See, it, it actually, once you hit the spiritual absolute, it actually straightens out the anatomical. Because truly speaking, it's your hands that play the instrument, not you. And who's moving your hand? Ah, well, you could spend your whole life deciding who that is. No matter who or what you think it is, you're right. You can never go wrong. You can only go wrong thinking that was wrong. I say that this is, I don't even know what God is, but this is God playing. But in fact, it's a neurological thing to lift a finger if I put it up here. There you are. I can do that without thinking. Then I do this. And sometimes when I show that to piano players, if you really want to know how simple this is, close the lid. Lift your finger. Drop the finger. Oh, that's it? Yeah, now do it here. They go. Because sound activates the ego again, activates the narcissism. If you can get to the point where this and this are equal, you found the truth. So you have to stay with a belief until it's fully baked, and then it's, it's reality. But as you said, it could be experiential knowledge, not necessarily based on belief. Although I think what you're trying to say is, is in order to get to that experiential knowledge, you have to have some faith, some faith in Kenny's way of practice. Every time. Here's the thing. If I practice what Kenny's talking about, I'm going to get much, I'm going to find the truth. I'm going to get much deeper. Well, you won't practice it that long if you're going to think about that. What if you, let me, here's the best analogy. You brush your teeth. Now, we might have talked about this because we had a long talk before we did this thing. But this is one of my licks. It's in the book. You brush your teeth tonight. You're going to brush really great. It doesn't matter how great you brush it. Tomorrow morning, you fully expect to wake up and brush them again. And you're not like quanti quantifying, boy, I'm really doing good with this brushing. Boy, in another couple of years, I'm going to, there's nothing to attain. Right. If you take these exercises with that true feeling like brushing your teeth, you will change. But your desire to change will probably short circuit it before you get anywhere. Hmm. So part of the philosophy, how can you say you've let go of all expectations so that you can become a person that doesn't have expectations? Well, now you expect to become a person that doesn't have expectations. I know this, man. I spent six, I'm 70. I spent 65 years doing this. I went, oh yeah, just give it up. What does surrender mean? It means you make a decision and it could be the wrong decision. It doesn't matter. And you know what starts to happen? You make all sorts of wonderful decisions. 
that shows if there is a God, I-H-E, very compassionate. Or kind of like sadistic humor. You can have whatever you want. Just demonstrate that you don't need it. <laughs> yeah. If I was talking to God, I'd say, why don't you let people have the thing that they need? <laughs> why do they have to totally not need it before you're to give it to them? So you can go anywhere you want with this. But ultimately, to expect nothing is to even get to the level where you don't expect to expect nothing. And it becomes real. Now, to answer the thing you said a while ago, now you have to come back to the world. What if I want to play a tune? Then you have the shock of either being in the space or managing playing that tune. At first, it is really... You know, for a lot of people, it says, well, wow, I thought I had a life here. I don't even have a life. Yeah, you do have a life, but you've got to practice now much smaller, much deeper, and with no goal, like brushing your teeth. Right. So if I'm going to play Autumn Leaves, and someone's learning to play it the whole tune, and the whole tune sucks, but you know the space so well because along with your 24 hours is five minutes here and five minutes there, where all you care about is the space, not the music. That's really what these are about. If you cared about the music, then you wouldn't notice that you're not in the space. But if you lose the space, then you stop doing the music. This is a very powerful restructuring of the reprogramming of the mind. But now you want to go... So there's a lot of innovations in practicing that came up just with the realization that you want to get to the point of moving it beyond your management facilities in the mind, where there's also all that corruption, needing to sound good and wanting other people to think you sound good and think I'm, you know, and just putting it right to the fingers. So now the purpose of practicing is to get the fingers to the point where they play it without you. And now you're really practicing becoming the instrument that plays the instrument. It's not you, and you trust your hands to do the groove. So you're in a groove. And, and when you're in there, you're impervious to fragilities, like, whoops, that was the wrong note. That doesn't matter. You're not playing the groove. The groove is playing you. Exactly. So in your book, Becoming the Instrument, you talk about how you become the instrument that plays the instrument, right? Well, that's literally true, isn't it? Yes, it is literally true, and so many creative musicians have expressed those sentiments uh, in different ways, but you had Bob Dylan saying that, I don't write the songs, the songs write me. Keith Richards said, you don't play the riff, the riff plays you, etc. But now we could zoom out and say that you're not only an instrument when you're playing music, but your whole life is an instrument of something bigger than you. So your purpose is beyond being an instrument in music, you're an instrument of life. You would take? I'm aware of it, but see, as soon as I was to take that on, then I would lose my balance. I have to remember, it's the same little kid that was sitting on, it, on, the, on the couch watching TV, because that's how my parents babysat me. And when I go all the way back to what really is me, me without growth, then I see all the growth. It's weird. You, you know, I said in the first book, I said, look, I'm just a little Jew from Long Island. So if you think this is heavy wisdom, then you know that you might just be a little Lutheran from Minnesota and you're capable. See, a lot of us assume that we have limitations 
because we're not black, because we're not Brazilian. We assume maybe we were even raised to believe that we had limitations. What effortless mastery postures, posits, posits is that a depth or a freedom that you didn't grow up with can be attained, but it can't just be reading a book. That would only indicate what you need to do. What are the practices that will take you there so that you become that? And effortless mastery is a series of exercises that practice the truth. And even if you lose, and you're welcome to lose the truth as soon as you stop doing them. In fact, I say it works best if you go into that space. This like now I've began to call it an alternate universe. Interesting. In this alternate universe, music doesn't matter. What matters is what's happening in here. Yeah. So you say, well, that universe is not practical for the regular universe. It's not, but it sheds light on that universe when you go back to it. Mm -hmm. So now that you've got an anchor in this kind of growth, you want to practice whatever it is you're playing to bring it closer and closer to the truth. So step one was this, right? So step two is this. Just make it a little more available. This is step two. What am I doing? I'm just pressing buttons. Now, as soon as somebody thinks to themselves, oh, you know, like an educated musician, which is the hardest thing to be. Education is like, try to be a real musician and educated at the same time. It's nearly impossible. But an educated musician will say, Ah, 12 tone, oh, 20th century, oh, uh, you know, so-and-so, you know, uh, right? But I'm not playing music. My fingers are pressing the buttons. But now I could be hooked by trying to press the right buttons. And as soon as I feel that way, like, wow, this is so incredibly hip, I don't want my mind to find a way in. I'm in these exercises, in this alternate universe, I want to free up my hands to show me what they might play without my constant surveillance. Yeah. And also, they may show me all the wrong shit, but without a mind that's putting that in context, it's suddenly the new shit. If it was anything I liked about jazz, it was that when someone played without regard for what's appropriate, they might have created new shit. And that's Thelonious Monk, and that's, you know. Absolutely. Jazz could change by the sheer arrogance of a person or their illness. I mean, these days, a lot is explained with Monk. They think he might have been bipolar, he might have been schizophrenic. Well, that stuff's great when it comes to music. You know, there's a thousand stories about Monk because he wasn't well, but it created new music. Well, let me know if, if I'm off the mark here, but the message that I get from all of your work, really, and sometimes it's more salient than others, but the message that I'm hearing, which I think is quite therapeutic, is that you become the instrument of something else when you're playing, correct, but your validity as a human being is not just to be an instrument so that you can play an instrument. It's just because you're a human being that you're valid. Exactly. Your purpose, your validity, your worth is really limitless. We all believe that. 
But it does take exercises to get to the point where that's reality. Yeah. You know, more people believe what you just said than experience what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Would you, would you agree? Oh, yeah. You know, for so many musical people, music is therapeutic and healing, but music alone is not enough. You need other practices to help buttress you for the challenges of life. Some people are blessed with the whole message. Yeah, and again, it can be coming from a very poor country. Uh-huh. That finally, you know, you got a, a scholarship to Berkeley and so you got your brand new guitar. You know, you know Lionel Lewicki? No, I don't. Uh, he's, check him out. He's one of the greatest guitar players, but it's music. I mean, it goes beyond guitar. Yeah. You know? He does like bass and guitar. You know, nothing I say about the music defines Lionel Lewicki. You just listen to him. And it's the spirit plus virtuosity. But virtuosity that serves at the feet of spirit is even more than just virtuosos for us. And I think you and I would feel the same way. This guy is absolutely killing. This guy, whoa, he actually didn't make me think that the most important thing was what a great player he was. It was who he was offering it to. Uh -huh. So Lionel Luigi, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be saying this in public media, I forget is he from Belarus? He's from a small country that starts with a B. And to play guitar, he took off bicycle spoke, spikes mm. and somehow made a guitar. Can you imagine how grateful and ecstatic and intoxicated he was when someone put a guitar in his hand? Mm -hmm. So there are people born with the right elements if their karma or luck or whatever gets them to a point where they can experience the relief from that, you know. And then there are people who are so talented. I'm one of those. On a minimum of work, I, I almost felt, I felt guilty. You know, people say, how much you practice? They said, you can ask every woman all the way back to my mother. Only, you know, hardly. I don't know, I was really talented. So I could beat myself up with the thought, what would have happened if you were really dedicated? I don't know, it wouldn't be what it is now. But rather than thinking that thought, I think I'll just watch myself breathe. Because <laughs> that thought never has and never will make this moment better. It makes it worse. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know. Yeah. It's taken me a lifetime to get rid of that stuff, which I'm, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty much happening. But I don't want young people to think it takes that long. You just have to know what you're looking for at the beginning, which is nothing. And they get come, do things, but don't look for anything. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, it's, you know, that's that Buddhist... Yeah three ring circle you know when people have that experience they they say yeah i'm trying to understand that my life matters a lot more than music because when i actually believed it i played a lot better so here here's a funny kind of uh you know contradiction someone believed what i said play don't play as bad as you can or write some of these people say how do i write from the space i'll, I'll use writing well, I said, what's the most anxious moment when you're writing? And everybody asks in this and that, a blank page. Why is that an anxiety moment? And then they guess this and they guess that. No, because you're trying to write something good. Write something bad. You can fill page after page. Nice. And as soon as they buy that, the ideas start to become electric. And then they want to keep them going. And that's a good time to put down the pen. Because you've lost it. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of a thing with humans when you let go of the tyranny of evaluating yourself. 
it's amazing what things open up. But then you go, you're tempted to think, let's say I played a gig and I fell into the space and it was so great. Most people say they remember that gig for the rest of their lives. So then the next gig is usually horrible because they don't remember how they got there. They remember that they played so good. Now with the expectation that's going to happen again, the opposite happens. Uh -huh. So it's about dancing with the devil. And when the devil comes in, you do a pirouette and you're free again. Devil says, oh, yeah, you're going to have it. Yeah, now you really know how to do it. And you go, no, I don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I did much better when I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I'll, I'll try. You know, darts. You throw a dart and everybody, no matter how bad they are, everybody has that one experience, right? You're throwing it. You can feel it in the trajectory. You can feel it, the balance of your body. And you know it's going into the bullseye, right? Mm -hmm. Where does the next dart go? You think... Of course, now you want that experience again. You try to replicate all that, and it looks for a second like it's going, and then it goes, whoop, and it doesn't even hit the thing. It hits the bottom of the wall. This is human nature, or an aspect of human nature, if you want to say lower or higher. A higher level of human nature is to love myself equally hitting the bottom of the wall and hitting a bullseye. Right. Uh, if I play badly, a higher form of myself is instant forgiveness because I should not beat myself up with something that was given as a gift, music. That All that I now choose to call effortless mastery. So I've seen you refer to Siddha Yoga Meditation. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah, I, I, I don't really talk about it by name just because I'm... Yeah, what about it? Well, I had never heard of it. I, I'm just wondering if Siddha is like a, a nickname uh, for Siddhartha, S-I-D-H, if it has anything to do with that? No, that's what I thought. It's Siddhas in Kashmir Shaivism, again, that's, or Jainism or whatever. Siddha is an enlightened being. So what is an enlightened being? It's a person that on some level, to our view, understands who they are, even when they're in the delusion, the maya, of the physical universe usually and, and the idea of doing exercises to elevate you know for example everything is shakti so what is shakti in that whatever you want to call it in that tradition or that mythological whatever there's shiva the sustain you know the, the inventor of the universe and then shakti is his consort and shiva sends shakti to earth down to create things and she and Shakti creates. She's a goddess. She creates everything. She, you know, maybe it's the seven days. I don't. Whatever. You know, they all fables to me. It doesn't really matter whether they're true or not. And what happens is, when a person continues to elevate their awareness, if they get to a certain point, they may have epiphany, what they call Shakti Pat, uh, where they see everything as Shakti. People aren't black and white, they're all blue. And they can see energy moving in solid things. Now just think about that. People who were ascetics and were enlightened thousands of years ago could see that things were moving in solid objects. And then we discover molecules, I don't know, a thousand years later. Cool. So they see that through another kind of receptor. And that, the closest thing in psychological circles that I found the name for is, you know, universal mind, universal con super conscious focus, conscious mind, subconscious, 
and superconscious. Superconscious is that part that you could open up in a cartoon and it opens to the whole universe. And your breath is a way of getting there. Yeah. A lot of times we're there when we just don't even realize it because it's the absence of things more than anything else. It's not an addition of anything. It's the absence of things that are making us feel like this drama. You know, I could say this whole drama here doesn't matter, but that would just be a saying because I haven't evolved to that point. Okay. But there are people on earth that can walk the earth and simultaneously know that this Muktananda, who is one of the gurus of Siddhi Yoga, said it's a, he wrote a book called Play of Consciousness. That's a very good term for it. It's Siddhi Yoga is just a certain lineage of gurus. But there are other lineages. There's uh, Rama, Rama Maharshi. There's, you know. Yeah, Sri Ramana Maharshi. He's great. Yeah, well, he had one thing. Who are you? Yeah, he taught to ask yourself, who am I? Yeah, who am I? Who are you? Self-inquiry. He yeah. said you don't even have to meditate. Yep. The question is, are these just tempting subjects over a glass of wine? Or are you in enough discomfort to really have to follow it? It wasn't a love of God. It wasn't a love of guru. It was the reality that most of the time when I wasn't playing, I didn't feel good. And all I've been looking for is, I want to feel good. And then I found out if you follow the right path, it feels great. But I didn't, wasn't looking for the right thing. I thought you had to be somebody that gave a shit about God. I just want to feel good. Then I heard a guy in program say, I would look for this guy with overalls. He was a farmer who was an alcoholic. So over 50 years, I was looking for God, looking for God here and there, and then I stopped looking, and then I found him. It's that same thing you can say it a bunch, a million ways. Attaining it calls for some kind of practice. Absolutely. It takes practice just like playing an instrument. It takes practice. Otherwise, you remain where you are in the philosophy. The idea remains where it is. Part of my message is that it's far more accessible than we imagined. Yeah, it seems to be a thing to appeal to more people, make simpler bites. But hey, whatever's going to get them through the door of wisdom is definitely a good thing. Well, listen, you and I could duet discursively ad infinitum with great exhilaration. And hopefully people will find something in there to give them some relief. I hope so, because that makes me feel good. Why not? Nothing to be ashamed of. Doing good and feeling good. Know what you're looking for. And articulate it without guilt. So are there any final thoughts you want to articulate? Well, I think I would love to see people read my book. They'd find it tremendously entertaining because it is my voice. It's not a literary work. It's my voice on print. And I think there's some funny moments in it. And I would like to read it, but we're starting to do this online. You know, Vivian, who you talk, you know, you know about my And online, it's just, if you just email... I don't know if you can put it up somewhere, but if you just email KennyWernerMusic.com or, or Vivian Singh or Effortless, you know, um, they would just be in the loop. Sometimes I do this, you know, webinar and anybody can tune in or we do, we're doing classes because the only people that I can help guide you know, are people that go to Berkeley. So obviously that's very few people. So now one of the offhanded things, that, the silver linings of, 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 uh, the pandemic is that you know anybody anywhere can study with you and this kind of transmission works very well electronically it, you don't have to be in the room i would argue it's almost more focused 
Then if they were in the room and somebody's in the back row and they're checking their phone, and it's like everybody's face face to face, and it works very well. So every or right, here's the last message: everybody can make this change. It takes less than you think, but it does take consistency. And the only way to be consistent is not to ask yourself, how am I doing? I'll leave it there. Well, that's a great way to leave it. I want to thank you, Kenny, so much. It's been a pleasure and a sincere sensation speaking with you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much.